Thank you. Uh, that's a, a song of UK origin, and that's pretty appropriate for our next guest. But I was thinking about how I could introduce Jyoti Brar, our comrade from the United Kingdom. And I was thinking about that, and you know, I feel increasingly like an old man. I'm only 35 years old, but I can remember a time where in order to have a Facebook account, you had to have a college email address. You had to end in .edu to get a Facebook account. People remember those days back in, back in the old days. I also remember a time when YouTube videos had to be less than 10 minutes long. Do folks remember that? Well, back, back in those old times, uh, I randomly, well, not randomly, I was looking for communist stuff on the internet. I came across a video by a communist activist from the United Kingdom. And it was divided into 10-minute segments, because it was back in the time where YouTube videos had to be only 10 minutes long. And it was Jyoti Brar giving a speech about uh, how, what October means to my generation. And it was a powerful speech because it spoke to the anti-communism of Western society and the cliches of anti-communism that are everywhere. And, uh, you know, Jyoti Brar is here to represent uh, the Communist Party of Great Britain Marxist-Leninist, uh, which is quite a name, but they call themselves the communists. They're just, that's, the communists is their brand, I guess. You know, their, their name is, is, is quite a, a thing. And, you know, I will say that, um, you know, I have always liked any organization that defends the history of socialism and says that the Soviet Union had a huge economic achievements, defends against the lies of, of capitalism. I've also had a particular fondness for any organization uh, that stands with countries that are under attack by the imperialists, whether they be socialist or bourgeois nationalist or anti-imperialist. I, I have always had a, a strong you know, affiliation and desire to see that. But one thing that her organization has done that's really, really important is that the educational videos that they have that are viewed all over the world are very powerful. The amount of effort they put into, and for years and years, they've been having forums and seminars with very informative talks. Also, the organization is playing a leading role now in the international communist movement. And that's why Jyoti is here, because there is a big divide among communist parties around the world. Uh, we're on the danger of a new world war. Russia and China are under attack and standing up to the imperialists. And there are many parties around the world, many parties that you know, call themselves Marxist-Leninist parties, might even defend Stalin, might even defend Mao, but they seem to fall into the delusion of thinking this is an inter-imperialist rivalry. So Jyoti has been at the center of a very important international effort called the World Anti-Imperialist Platform, which is an attempt to build a poll, a unified poll of communist parties from around the world that reject such notions and make clear that if a fight begins on the Korean Peninsula, if a fight begins in the Taiwan Straits and in the ongoing fight that is taking place in, in Ukraine, one side's right and one side is wrong. Uh, and that it is the duty of communists to stand with Russia and China and People's Korea uh, against the imperialists. Uh, and that is the position that Venezuela takes. That's the position that Nicaragua takes. Look, I say to people, people often say, oh, how could any communist support Russia? I say, name me one communist party that is in power anywhere in the world that doesn't support Russia and Ukraine right now. One. Name them. One. One. Right? The communists in Nicaragua support Russia. The communists in Venezuela support Russia. They just built a monument to Fidel Castro in Moscow. They support Russia. Uh, who else? Uh, you know, I mean, Vietnam supports Russia. People's Korea supports Russia. But yet, the Western movement has been so confused. I also, uh, I feel like I, in the most recent times, in like the last year, I've gotten to know Jyoti a bit better because her father, who is a very important Marxist leader in Britain, and, uh, and herself, uh, have they been doing a podcast? We've been doing a podcast. We've got 14 episodes already up. Uh, 
And it's, it's a lot of fun because we've been going over the history of the communist movement um, and bringing in different perspectives. Her father has been an organizer for many, many years, was the founder of the Communist Party of Great Britain, Marxist-Leninist, and a leader of the Indian Workers Association, uh, a dynamic writer. And, uh, and on this trip, I actually, you know, it was really great. Elizabeth and myself got to spend Wednesday uh, with Jyoti. We got to look at the cherry blossoms, and I got to know Jyoti a little bit better. I, I learned that she has a degree in music. I mean, I knew that already from her talk on the October Revolution, but I didn't know that she'd worked at BBC for a while and, and, and seen the other side of things. We got to compare notes about different trends of leftists and, and what, what it's like in leftist politics, and it was really, really great. Uh, Jyoti is a really, really important friend of the Center for Political Innovation. She's a really, really important ally of what we're doing here. Uh, on top of that, um, you know, we're, we're really happy to see that uh, finally one organization in the United States has signed on to the, to the World Anti-Imperialist Platform, and that's the Party of Communists USA, and that's a very important development. We're really happy about that. And we hope that the world anti-imperialist platform will expand uh, because that's where the global communist movement is at. And Jyoti was just in Caracas uh, for a global uh, gathering of communist parties to build the world anti-imperialist platform. So uh, I guess with no further ado, uh, we're going to hear from a very important leader of the world communist movement and of the communist movement in Britain. Um, and afterwards, after she speaks, we'll have a Q&A uh, and let her answer questions. Uh, so Jyoti Brar. Thank you, Caleb. That was a lovely introduction. Um, all true. I remember very clearly, actually, when um, Caleb picked up on that video we're talking about, he was mentioning, because it was the very earliest days of our party's foray into using YouTube as an educational medium. And um, it was quite early days of YouTube, I guess, generally. Um, and I have to uh, give credit to my brother, who was the one who said, you know, if we put videos online, they're there forever, you know, and, it's, and then our meetings live forever, right? And then all that effort you've gone into, and we do in our party, as, as Caleb said, and as you do in the, in the CPI, we place a huge importance on theoretical work, on the, on the work of teaching and transmitting the science of Marxism to our members, to our, our supporters, to anybody who'll listen to us, and... Those video talks have been a phenomenal resource. And of course, like, you know, with websites generally, you know, this is the plus side of the internet. When you take away all the algorithms and the fact that nobody knows you're, you're there in order to try to find you, once they find you, what they can find is an archive. And now our party has a huge archive of, of written materials also on every topic you can imagine that matters to working people. We've written something. And that the, the internet means the archive lives forever. Once you find it, you can, at your leisure, look through it, read, start to become educated. And it's been the same with the videos. I remember that Caleb found that video because he reposted it. He had a little blog. I don't know how old you were, Caleb. Quite young, I think. Um, possibly still a teenager. Yeah. Um, but he reposted the video. And I guess there's some mechanism by which we got some bounce back or some notification that that had happened. We're like, oh, who is this guy? So he seems to be a trot. That's funny, isn't it? <laughs> who, is this, who is this little trot who's like reposting videos from Stalinists? But anyway, it's, it's, he says nice things about the video, so that's quite nice, isn't it? He must be a slightly confused trot. 
<laughs> that, that was basically our conversation. Uh, our assessment of teenage Caleb was, he seems to be a confused Trotsky. Eh? Uh, I'm happy to see that the confusion has lifted and the early promise that was shown by his recognition of something useful in that video. Uh, you know, no particular glory to me about that. That was, you know, I was speaking on behalf of our party, as I always do, and our party does its best to speak on behalf of Marxism. And this is something that, I w it's not in my speech, but I'll, I'll start by saying this. I think it's very, very important for everybody here, everybody who might be listening or watching later online, um, to understand we are not in the business of creating gurus. We are not here to tell you, listen to me, I'm really clever, okay? Anything you hear from me is Marxism. If you like what you hear, if you think I express things well in a way that makes sense, what it is that you're approving of is scientific socialism. And you can also acquire the same power, right? This is not my special talent. It's not even Caleb's special talent. Caleb's good at it because he spent a lot of time Reading, writing, practicing, speaking, yes? Acquiring the science and learning in practice how to use it, how to apply it to reality. That's what we are trying to explain to all of you, to as many people as possible. The power of this science is when it grips the working class. We don't want the working class to follow somebody. We want them to take up Marxism. And the job of everybody who understands the importance of Marxism is to master it to the best of your ability. Never stop trying to master it. It's not like a reading list that you finished with one day, right? When, you've, when you think you've finished reading Marxism, go back to the beginning and start again, right? Read Marxism every day. Practice applying it to real life. Learn how to speak it to people of all levels. So you get familiar with how to put across complex topics in easy, accessible ways without taking out the science, without taking out the essence. The best person to learn that skill from actually is Stalin. He was brilliant at putting forward complex ideas in simple ways, in ways that the masses could understand without ever dumbing down. He never patronized people and said, well, you won't understand this. You're not clever enough like me. He knew how to express complex ideas, scientific ideas in popular ways. And that's, that's our job as scientific socialists, to find popular ways to express scientific ideas without ever letting go of the science. Because without the truth, without the science, we have absolutely nothing. And the second we put down the science in an effort to become big and popular, we've thrown away the whole point of what we're doing because it's only the science that will take us to victory. And being big without victory is utterly pointless, <laughs> right? We don't want to stay small, right? I mean, some people, you sort of get the impression they've, they've sort of got themselves into a little trap where they feel that anything that makes you popular must automatically be wrong. <laughs> we have lived through that kind of a time, yeah, where a lot of the things people did to get popular were selling out. And therefore, you know, there's that fear of if too many people start listening, have I done something wrong? <laughs> we get attached to being in a corner. Yes, the power of this science will really come to life when it's gripped by the masses. It's our job to take it to them, to train ourselves 
So we're capable of connecting this powerful science with the masses. And I loved actually what Garland said yesterday, that there's also, you know, the, the need for, uh, to do our work, but with a recognition and a patience that says there's an objective as well as a subjective situation. Subjectively, our job is to find every person who is ready and capable of being trained and train them because they're going to be needed. And the desperate, the fear that I have is the climax, the, the, the contradictions will break out, the, the, the revolutionary moment will appear and our forces will just be too weak to offer the leadership, to, to connect in the way that is necessary um, to help the masses find the right way. But we have work to do, no matter what the situation, we have work to do. Find the people who are prepared to be trained and train them. That's our job. Objectively, there's also a situation. You know, conditions have to be right for the masses to be ready to move. We can see those conditions are developing around us and at an ever-increasing rate. But exactly when all of those things come to fruition and, and create a situation where the masses are moving, nobody's got a crystal ball. You can see the direction of travel. You can see it's coming. You can see we have a hell of a lot of work to do to prepare and to find those people and train them. Okay? And I think we, we need to be all right that that's our job. <laughs> you know? It's plenty to be getting on with, isn't it? Um, but the impatience and the kind of pessimism that leads people to ditch the task is too big, it's too difficult, the people aren't ready for my message. You know, all these messages they tell themselves, the antidote to all of those feelings is study. Because when you study Marxism, and when I say Marxism, I don't mean anybody who says they're a Marxist. I mean actual Marx, Engels, Lenin. Read a bit of those guys every single day, no matter what else you do, no matter what you watch or listen to. Or, because they're like, I shouldn't say it this time, it's a contra um, controversial, uh, what's the word? A metaphor, simile. It's an inoculation, a real one, right? Against bourgeois ideology and bourgeois pessimism. It reminds you that we are part of the sweep of history. There's a perspective that Marxism gives you that defies pessimism. Yes? History, in general, is going this direction, yes? But it doesn't move in a straight line. It moves like this. Right? You might live your whole life while it's going down there. But Marxism tells you, never mind, it's still going this way. Right? And if you look at the big picture, you can see that's true. You can see that's true. No matter what your personal situation is, you can see that's true. And as a Marxist, you have a part to play. How lucky are you? How lucky are you? to know what the truth is and to have a part to play in moving history forwards, you are lucky. No matter how hard the situation is that you're in, no matter how difficult your personal situation is, this is the antidote to pessimism and overwhelm of all kinds. You have a part to play. History's on your side. You're on the right side of history. Yes? You have something to do with your life which has a point which serves humanity, what could be better? What could be better? What is a better way to get rid of all of the rubbish that fills your mind and overwhelms you and distracts you and brings you down than understanding that? And letting go of the egotism that says, well, if I'm not gonna see the result of what I'm working for, 
what's the point? The point is you're part of humanity. The point is even if you don't have children, even if you don't intend to have children, all the world's children are your children. That's the human point of view. Capitalism says your children are your property and other people's children are none of your business. This is profoundly anti-human perspective. No other society ever said that about children, and nor will any future society. We live in a weird time where everything abnormal has been normalized and everything normal is presented to us as if it's odd, right? Human nature itself is turned upside down and inside out and we're presented this weird picture of ourselves distorted through the lens of imperialist, you know, production relations, and we're told that we're the opposite of what we are and everything we aspired to is impossible. All problems are insolvable some, for some reason that no one can quite explain. And we just have to put up and shut up and accept being, as Stalin said, ground down lower and lower into the dirt, more and more fragmented, isolated, alienated, confused, desperately fighting every one of us fighting an individual battle to fix ourselves. We're all broken. Look around you, especially, and the closer you get to the belly of the beast, the more broken everybody is because they've lost community. And it's the one thing that makes you human. And we don't have it. And our kids don't know what to do with themselves and we can't help them. It doesn't matter how good a parent you are. If society is broken, you can't fix that for your kids. You can't. You're looking at an impotent parent right here, right? Watching teenage children go through all of this, utterly powerless to help them because they're not old enough yet to know that I actually understand what they're going through <laughs> and that I understand the world that they live in. I'm mum, <laughs> so I know nothing. And they're in a world that doesn't give them what they need and I can't give it to them either because what they need is social. There's no solution under this broken system, none at all, none at all. That's why we're here, that's why we do what we do. But the pursuit of the truth is a powerful thing. That's our superpower. And knowledge of the truth keeps you sane in this frankly mental world. But not forever, you know. When you look at how insane the world is and it overwhelms you, let your Marxism remind you this is a sign of decay, of rottenness, of imminent collapse. Yes? The last days of Rome. Embrace it. Okay. This is the end of the end. That means we're coming close to the beginning. Yes? And we can remember that and keep that perspective when things are hard for in your country, in our country, all the problems that we face in organising. Nevertheless, we have what people need. For their liberation, they need scientific socialism. Look what scientific socialism achieved in the 20th century. We have that science. No matter how it's been thrown in the dust and spat on by even people who call themselves communists, it still is what people need. We know it. We can help people to find it. That's our job. If you're someone who's understood Marxism is true, 
scientific socialism has the answers for humanity, then you have a job. Your job is to help other people understand that too. Right? Uh, I went off on one there. That was, none of that was in my talk. I just started talking. I did a Caleb. <laughs> I did a Caleb and started talking. You'll have to... Um, <laughs> now, hmm. there's too many things I could say, and I can't take all of your time. You know, we're living in really interesting times, aren't we? There's a... I think it was the Chinese had a saying, and it was actually a curse. May you live in interesting times. <laughs> May you live in interesting times. It's double-sided, isn't it? We are living in interesting times. I personally, for everything that's hard, for the reason I just said to you, I'm excited to be living in these interesting times because I see the contradictions of the system exacerbating, the contradictions between our groups of rulers and uh, widening all the time, their infights getting bigger, and their utter inability to find their way out of this crisis. And everything they do is backfiring and making the crisis worse. It's a terrible tragedy for the world that the world's communist movement is not big and strong and united and able to take advantage of the weakness in the enemy camp in the way it should. That is, as Caleb said, you know, the reason that we form the anti-imperialist platform. It is so clearly desperately needed clarity around what's happening in the world, what's the primary contradiction, what should we be uniting around, who is on whose side and why. These are the most vital questions of our time, the most vital. If we answer that right, if we respond in the right way, we've got a chance of turning this terrible situation into something wonderful. And you only have to look at what happened in World War I and World War II to understand that. Yes? So, Interesting times, difficult times, challenging times, terrifying times, exciting times, times of opportunity. If we do the right thing, won't happen by itself. It won't happen by us sitting at home and saying, looking at YouTube and saying, that guy's right and that guy's wrong. <laughs> Swipe. Okay? It won't happen that way. It won't. We have to take the truth to the masses because when they start to move, they need to know which way to move. And it's going to matter. It's really going to matter. And the outcome won't just affect you or me. It will affect the world for a long time. For a long time. So it really matters. You know, the escalation in Ukraine. I don't like to say the war in Ukraine. You know, people say the war in Ukraine, and they mean since last February. War in Ukraine didn't start last February. Now, I know I don't need to tell you guys that. But so I'll say the escalation of the war in Ukraine when Russia began its special military operation finally, finally realised it had no choice, had been left with no choice but to take a military answer <clears throat> to what had been going on, has drawn a line across the globe. <clears throat> Pardon me. And on the one hand, we've seen that it's accelerating the decline and the collapse of the imperialist system in general and of US hegemony in particular. That was something that's been ongoing. Marxists have been commenting on it. I've been listening to my dad talk about how the USA is bankrupt for decades. 
So we've seen this direction of travel for a long time, but now we see these contradictions accelerating. And every measure taken, like I said, to defeat Russia is rebounding and deepening the economic crisis from which the imperialists are so desperately trying to escape. It's also increasing their fear. It's increasing their desperation to save their system and save their position within the system. And then on the other hand, the escalation in Ukraine is accelerating the formation of a strong and increasingly unified anti-imperialist camp. It's a heterogeneous anti-imperialist camp. It's not like in the days uh, when Stalin was alive, when the anti-imperialist camp was predominantly socialist, led by Marxist-Leninists, with a clear scientific guiding ideology, made up of very different parts. Some socialists, some anti-imperialists, some developing economies, some developed and strong economies, but united in their striving for sovereignty, independence, their understanding, increasing understanding, that the only way they can survive against aggressive imperialism is together, that their defense must also be military, because that's the only language the imperialists understand and they have to be prepared. And the imperialists have to know they're prepared to use their weapons. They have to have the weapons, they have to be prepared to use them in their defense. The imperialists have to know that. It's your best guarantee of peace. And if you're attacked, it's your best guarantee of victory. And make no bones about it, comrades. If those countries are drawing to war, we better hope they're victorious. We better had. This is a message our workers need to understand. We need Russia and China to win, not the USA and Britain, yep. right? Yep. So I was thinking I might read the Paris Declaration to you, but I've taken too much time yakking. So uh, you probably, most of you in this hall have seen it. If you haven't, please go and read it or watch the video of me saying it, or both, read along while you listen. Um, it's a very important document and it aims to give a clear, it's a concise document, purposefully so, to clearly just a summary of the main and most important fundamental points of what's happening in the world today, a line around which anyone who opposes imperialism should be able to coalesce. It's purposefully broad. It's not only communists who are in this fight, it's anybody who stands up against imperialism. Now, of course, in the Western countries, you pretty much have to be a communist to be an anti-imperialist. It's pretty hard otherwise. You know, because in a Western country, <laughs> there is no national bourgeois. There's imperialism and there's a working class, there's socialism. So in, in the Western countries, it, I, I, to be honest with you, I don't trust someone who says they're an anti-imperialist but not a communist. Because what does it mean? It generally means they've given up on the idea of revolution. They're, over, they're, they're overwhelmed by the power of their own ruling class, but they have sympathy for anti-imperialist movements elsewhere. There's a lot of that goes on. You know, oh, I like the fact that there's people fighting back somewhere else. <laughs> so I'm an anti-imperialist, which means I, I sort of pat those 
people on the heads and identify myself with their... Oh, I love the Venezuelan revolution. I love the Cuban revolution. I love the... Why can't I have one here? But I'm an anti-imperialist. <laughs> but imperialism has two feet, as my old comrade used to say. He wrote a beautiful poem about Indian revolutionaries, Udham Singh and Bhagat Singh. And in that poem, he talked about imperialism standing on both its feet. And he said, small comfort that the boot grinds heavier overseas because the lightest boot is heavy and the price of freedom great. We still have the heel of imperialism on our heads here too, right? It's not quite as heavy. We don't feel it in quite the same in-your-face way that they do around the globe. But we still feel it. So, my point there, I went on another one. An anti-imperialist in the West has to be a communist. But, but we purposefully wrote the Paris Declaration so all the forces against imperialism around the world, the forces of national liberation, can agree with it and sign up to it. It's not a communist document. It's an anti-imperialist document. Because the fundamental contradiction in today's world is the struggle between the imperialist camp and the anti-imperialist camp. And we need to align. So we formed the World Anti-Imperialist Platform. We launched the Paris Declaration. And the platform set itself three main goals. One is the coalescing, like I said, of a broad anti-imperialist movement recognising this is the most crucial issue of our times, setting out a clear understanding around which we can bring forces together. And so anyone who can agree with the Paris Declaration can sign it, can come to our conferences, can organise with us to try to build this movement and this awareness. We've also set ourselves the task of waging an ideological fight against those forces who are spreading wrong ideas that are dividing our movement and creating confusion just when we need unity and clarity. Caleb referred to it earlier. I'm going to talk about it more later. These wrong definitions, these distortions of the teaching on imperialism, which are cutting the heart out of the anti-war movement, because the people who should be the steel in its centre the people who should be the vanguard are the communists. And where are they? They're all over the place. They're sidelined. They're arguing with each other in corners and refusing to take their position because they don't have theoretical clarity. There's a lot of historical reasons for that, but it's a big problem right now. Right now it matters and, you, and we see the result of decades of disintegration and of letting go of study and allowing other people to do your thinking for you. And that comes back to what I was saying in the beginning. Don't leave your thinking to somebody else because you never know where they might end up leading you. The communist movement, yes, it relies on dedicated leaders who who spend their lives, you know, studying and practicing the art and science of revolution. But it also relies on its members. A communist organization is only as strong as its membership. You have to be able to make decisions collectively because no one is always right. And the collective is only as strong as its weakest member. Yes? 
We have a duty to be the best possible scientific socialists so that collectively we make the best possible analyses, the best possible decisions, implement our decisions in the best possible way, learn from our mistakes in the quickest possible time, work out how to rectify those mistakes. Don't imagine even with a group you won't make mistakes. How do you recognise them? How do you rectify them? All of this requires us to have a high level of understanding and not to rely on somebody else who sounds convincing and tells you, oh, don't worry, I've read it all, I understand it all. And don't rely either on the fact that, oh, well, I read imperialism 20 years ago, I, got, I basically know what's in it. Read it again. <laughs> and then read it again. Yes, there's certain of the key texts that you should be reading you know, every year, every other year. These are not a reading list. This is science and you will forget it, no matter how brilliant your brain is and mine is terrible. And it will get undermined by the daily onslaught of bourgeois propaganda. And you will become, without topping up, without reminding yourself of the, of the real science, you will become, without even realising it, pragmatic. Watch out for that. Because <laughs> the path of least resistance is always down a bourgeois line. Always. It doesn't mean everything we do has got to be the hardest possible thing. It means if you're not carefully, consciously, scientifically thinking about what you're doing, your prejudice and the thing that seems popular or easy or clever, or whatever it is, will be down a line which is acceptable to the ruling class. It's just how it is. Read what is to be done. Read one step forward, two steps back. When Lenin was laying all this out for the Bolsheviks in the very beginning of the 20th century, you know? Those are also books that re you know, require regular rereading. Those explaining what is the job of a communist? What is the job of a communist party? What is not its job? And why is it that we so easily slip into avenues of pointless busy work? And how easy it is to keep yourself very busy doing things that are actually taking you nowhere. But you feel good. People like you for doing it. You might get some popularity, you might get some appreciation, you might get an audience, and you've been desperate for an audience, haven't you? <laughs> yes? Busy work. There's plenty for us to be busy with, but beware of being sucked into busy work without realising how it happened. Yeah? It's your science is your touchstone. You can always come back. You need to always have in your back of your mind, how is this helping us get closer towards revolution. Have I forgotten that that's my aim? Because the other thing that happens when you stop regularly reading Marxism is, and you're overwhelmed by pragmatism and all the people around you telling you, come on, be realistic. You end up settling for a position in the system. Oppositionism, anti-ism, hand-wringing. I'm against stuff. But I've forgotten that what I'm for, because I've given up believing that what I'm for is possible. Yes. How many of the people who you meet who call themselves socialist believe in the working class, believe that it's possible to make revolution 
and win and build a new society with the power of the working people? How many of them? They don't study Marxism. Socialism's just a, a badge and a hat and a club. And it's a, it's a group of things they don't like, right? Oppositionism. And that's another comfortable place you can end up at the extreme left of bourgeois politics, social democracy, basically, wrapped up in a lot of words and phrases and, you know, radical looking clothes or haircuts or caps or flags. You know, you can wave North Korea's flag. You can wave the Soviet Union's flag. You can put up Joseph Stalin's picture. But if you have given up believing there's such a thing as the revolution, you are not any longer a socialist. You're a social democrat. And you, all your activity, for all its revolutionary sounding words, is taking you absolutely nowhere. That is also why reading Lenin in particular is so important. Because there's 45 volumes. And on every page there's a warning. <laughs> there's a reminder of what you're doing of how you do it, of how you form alliances with whom, of how you work out what is the primary contradiction at any moment. Who is my ally in this bit of the fight right now to take me this one step forwards? And now who? And now who? And now who? And a relentless, relentless, relentless campaign to get from where we are to where we need to be. And never, ever letting go. He's like a terrier. Never let go of the aim. Be like Lenin. Right? Be like, don't be like Trotsky. <laughs> don't be an egotistical poser who will die as long as you've got an audience to watch you. You know, that's what I think it was John Reed said that about Trotsky. His evaluation said, you know, that guy would die for the revolution as long as the audience was big enough. <laughs> <laughs> don't be like that. <laughs> be someone who uses the science to understand the world, to help the working class achieve its liberation, and who understands. This is our goal. We're definitely going to get there. But there's every day I have to take a step in that direction. Every moment of my struggle is a part of building that movement that we need. Right now, what's the main task? How do I get the most energy onto that? Lenin's so brilliant at that, you know, big picture and then narrow it down. Right. So understanding all of this, what's the main contradiction? What are the forces at my command? What's the main force? Who do I have to bring together? That's what I hope, you know, the platform has learned from Lenin. Look at the world. Look what's happening. There's primary contradiction in the world today. We must, we must use our understanding to bring together the forces that can be brought together around that understanding because it matters. So the platform um, has taken uh, a kind of approach to the struggle, which is, uh, on the one hand, uh, waging this, uh, building a broad anti-imperialist movement, secondly, waging an ideological fight, and the third is to strengthen the international communist movement. So we, it's clear that we need a new pole of anti-revisionist, coherent communist activity. There hasn't been, there hasn't been one. <laughs> Really, there, has, there just hasn't been one. There have been attempts at different times. They've been um, sold out 
in different ways for different reasons at different times. It hasn't been possible to bring together the anti-imperialist camp, but the world demands it now. The world really demands it. And the thing that's enabling us to come together is whatever other differences we may have, if we clearly understand and agree who is imperialist and who isn't, and can work together on that issue, we've got a basis for unified activity. And it's the most important one there is. So at this moment, you can see why the war, the escalation in Ukraine has created a situation, number one, that needs a response, number one, that's creating a response, that's allowing people to put aside other questions that muddied the waters in their relations with one another and said, no, this is the question. Everything else now is secondary. Everything now is secondary, it's clear. This is the question on which we decide if we can work together or not. And then it becomes very clear. And it's helping us to bring together forces, communist forces in countries where they've been dissipated into lots of little groups. Those groups are starting to come together, work together. In Western Europe particularly, we're seeing that. In Italy, in France, it's a, it's a wonderful thing. And I think there's gonna be more of that. Uh, and on the other hand, it's making it very clear which parties are, are, are rotten beyond reprieve and which ones there's a chance to work on them and bring them, rescue them before the rottenness takes over. So that's serious work. It's ongoing. Uh, our practical approach is we've had, uh, we, we hold conferences around the world very often. <laughs> Um, so we, we launched with an international conference in, in Paris. That's why our declaration is called the Paris Declaration back in October. We followed up very quickly with a co co uh, conference in Eastern Europe in, in Belgrade in December. Recently, we moved to Latin America, as uh, uh, Caleb was saying, in Caracas in March. Upcoming is a conference in Seoul in May, East, uh, South Korea. Um, we have more in the pipeline we're looking at. Uh, Africa, we're looking at um, the Middle East, we're looking at Russia, we're looking at lots of things, places. So that is about taking our arguments to different parts of the world so different parties from different regions can join the conversation, can come together, can focus specifically on the way that the uh, imperialism versus anti-imperialism struggle is affecting their region because of course all the regions are affected slightly differently and yet it's a global struggle. So it's bringing that common understanding, helping people see, no, this is the same struggle everywhere whilst it has some regional features and characteristics. Um, and, and just, again, just, just taking the opportunity of being in somebody's locality, as in region, <laughs> um, to have better communication with them, to better understand their concerns and their situation, and equally give them a better idea of the platform, what it's about, what it's trying to achieve, and why they should be part of it. Um, so it's a, it's a hectic schedule in terms of just that part of the, of the work. Uh, simultaneously with that, we are organizing actions. So we try to have simultaneous um, protests on the streets of cities all around the world. Um, and we expect that um, side of the work also to, to grow, to keep growing, to get bigger as the crisis deepens, as the war drive escalates, as the platform grows, all of those things are, are bringing a momentum to that activity. Um, 
And, you know, we're, we're doing publications work as well. There's a website. There's going to be a news website where um, I'm supposed to be writing a little book. <laughs> there's another theorist who's writing, a, a Greek professor uh, who's a, a very uh, well-known Marxist theor theoretician. Um, so there's a whole load of, you know, different activities going on, all basically with the, with the aim that I've talked to you guys about. Um, little question why we have so much theoretical confusion in our movement. You know, um, I feel like I've mentioned, I can't remember if it was today or yesterday. <laughs> well, they jumped in. Yes, that's for sure. Um, you really have to go back to the death of Stalin. I see some people agreeing with me in this room. I'm glad, I'm glad to see that. Um, we have had really a whole period since the death of Stalin of theoretical division and disintegration in our movement. You look back to the days when Stalin was alive, the Chinese Revolution happened, the, the whole communist world marched in lockstep, confident in the leadership that was led by scientific socialism, confident that their movement was going from strength to strength and nothing was going to stop it. Confident in the respect and adherence of the masses of the world. Confident that they were the ones who were facilitating the rise of national liberation movements everywhere. And that most national liberation movements, if they weren't openly Marxist, they leaned towards Marxism. They leaned towards the Soviet Union, leaned towards China, trusted Stalin, trusted Mao. We had a huge base for the world revolution in the Soviet Union, and it expanded exponentially after World War II, and it looked like history was going only one way. But I guess it's like what we said, history doesn't move in a straight line. With the advent of Khrushchev to power, and soon after that, the Sino-Soviet split, which was totally precipitated by Khrushchev, I have to say. He takes the blame for all of that. Um, the imperialists were very quick to seize on every difference and to amplify them. It was the imperialists who used Khrushchev's allegations in his secret speech, which if you've read Grover Fur's book, I mean, I always knew it. <laughs> We were confident, without going through the archives, that that was all lies. But bless Grover for doing the work of trawling the archives to actually prove every... And I remember talking to him after he published that book, Khrushchev Lied, and he said to me, it was almost a bit embarrassing, because if I could have found one or two things that were true, it would have been a much easier sell. The problem is, it was all lies, and that makes me look like I'm just some kind of propagandist. But I just followed the evidence. The evidence says every single thing, every single allegation that Khrushchev made in that speech was a lie. Well, I could have told him that because it's all out of Trotsky. <laughs> he basically resurrected Trotskyism single-handedly in that speech. And the imperialists did not miss their opportunity. If you look at the history of the Western 
left movements, revolutionary, socialist, whatever you want to call what, what, what happened after 1956, you see a sudden sprouting of Trotskyite organizations everywhere, well-funded, very revolutionary sounding, criticizing the Soviet Union from the left and picking up all the people who were falling out of the, of the communist movement, in, feeling demoralized, in despair, not liking that the Soviet Union was suddenly preaching pacifism and denouncing Stalin and you know, doing all of these weird things that didn't seem to fit with what they thought they were in the movement for. So the imperialists took fantastic advantage of Khrushchev's secret speech. I'm afraid they also took advantage of the fact that the otherwise brilliant Chairman Mao also in that situation, precipitated by Khrushchev, main blame on Khrushchev, I've got to say, before I say, Chairman Mao made some important theoretical mistakes. And the imperialists jumped on them too. And they created, I blame the imperialists for the creation of the thing we call Maoism, <laughs> particularly in the West, right? Because what they did, and I'm sure the secret services must have been to do with this, because they pounced on each theoretical mistake of Chairman Mao's and turned those into a dogma, like a religion, around which to organize a supposedly revolutionary movement of, you know, like the Trotsky icing, ever decreasing circles of sectarian splinterizing and shouting at everybody for being a counter-revolutionary and a revisionist and a fascist and a this, that and the other. But essentially, his characterization of the Soviet Union as social imperialist. This, I'm sorry to say, was uh, a betrayal of Marxist science. No evidence offered. Now, this is one thing that Marxists cannot allow. You use the term imperialism, it's not a swear word. It's not a term of abuse. It's not just a word that means I don't like you. It's a scientific term. You have to prove it. Now, somebody showed me in the works of the great Chairman Mao where he showed that, where he proved it. He didn't. This is a, this is a great tragedy to our movement because it's one of the streams uh, of thought that now comes to us and says, China's imperialist, Russia's imperialist, social imperialism, social fascism, these terms that have no meaning in science, but they throw them around and it's become a dogma that's very hard to shake off for certain strands of thinking. And now, of course, we have a, a new, sorry, a new um, center of the creation of this theory uh, of um, imperialism in Russia and China and almost everywhere else in the world, which is the, the theory by the Greek Communist Party, their theory of the imperialist pyramid, which I'll come on to in a second. But then, of course, we had the 1991 counter-revolutions in Eastern Europe and the Soviet Union. And what was already a demoralized and disintegrating movement became totally chaotic. And in that period, you know, Hapal, uh, Caleb said that the work of my father, Hapal Bra, is very significant 
And it's, it's true, it is very significant. And the older I get, you know, I mean, it's difficult to see your father as significant because he's just your dad, right? But the more I'm a communist, the more time I've spent in the movement, and I have to tell you without, um, I have to give away my age by letting you know it's nearly 30 years now I've been active in the movement and studying for myself and not just listening to other people talk. The more I'm active in the movement, the more I study for myself, the more I understand for myself the significance of Rapal's work because he was fighting revisionism and keeping alive revolutionary Marxist ideology through this period where everybody was throwing it in the bin. And he did it in English. And aren't we grateful <laughs> that he did? He wasn't alone. He had, a, he had a, a core group around him of people who worked together to work out, study, work out these lines, bring them into the movement the best way they could, um, you know, reiterate, iterate, iterate constantly. But, you know, he is obviously the, the kind of well-known and theoretical founder of um, that work, the forerunning theoretician of that work. And it's... Decades of work like that, which were the basis for the foundation of our party in 2003. Our party, therefore, is not only 20 years old, or 2004, sorry. Um, it takes its roots back to the 1960s, because we it's based on the work of these comrades who were doing that work all the way through. You know, my father, my mother, the comrades around them, they joined the movement <clears throat> during the time of the Cultural Revolution, the time of the Sino-Soviet split. <clears throat> They were on the revolutionary side. They were, they were Maoists in the, when they, when they, in their 20s when they came to the movement. But they very quickly realised, and Hapal in particular realised, with all these gurus everywhere and all this confusion, the task of the moment was to study for yourself. Stop looking around for someone to follow. You can't judge he, could, he had no basis for understanding who's right and who's wrong, and they're all flinging all these accusations around and splitting, splitting left, right and centre over all kinds of things. How do you make sense of it all? You've got to go back to basics. That's the task he set himself. That's, that's the task he dedicated the rest of his life to. He was in his 20s when he decided that that was what needed to happen. That's what he's been doing for 60 years. So that's been the basis of our party's ability to have something to say about the world. We've been brought up in that culture by people who've studied seriously and who've told us, you must study. And on the basis of knowing something, you can speak. You know, Hapal often says to us, you know, a primary school teacher has to go through 14 years of education, primary, secondary, and then a degree, three years, and then a postgraduate qualification before they're allowed loose on little kids. But in our movement, anybody thinks they've got the right to go to the working class and tell them anything. <laughs> now, I don't want to stop people from getting active and say, oh, I'm not ready yet. No, you have to go, you have to start, you have to try, but have some humility. Amen. <laughs> Amen. Yeah. Remember, how little you know before you start telling it, talking to people like you know everything. You know, we live in a society where we're encouraged to bullshit. 
We're encouraged to blag. Yeah, fake it till you make it. Pretend you know shit. You know, and particularly in the in the um, what do they call that? You know, if you're a white collar worker and you make you do brain work, <laughs> pretend you know things. Blag it. There's even I was talking to um, Elizabeth. Sorry, Elizabeth. I have a head like a sieve. I was talking to Elizabeth on Thursday. That there's even a kind of a gender divide in our society about the the, the bullshit, not bullshit thing where the boys are really encouraged to, to, to learn the art of bullshit and <laughs> pretend you know everything and speak confidently about things that actually you know nothing about, yeah. while girls are encouraged to shut the fuck up even when they know loads. <laughs> and, pardon my French, uh, and to feel that they better not bullshit. They might get found out and they wouldn't like to pretend to know things that they don't know. And, you know, to, to try and look too clever. And there's a real, you know, so <laughs> we, have a, we have a kind of double thing to, to, to remind our uh, male comrades, it's, it's not in your genes, guys. It's the way our society brings you up, a tendency to pretend you know more than you do. And to our women comrades, you know more than you think you do. And it's okay to speak. Right? <laughs> But for all of us to just remember how little we know, how much there is to know, to never pretend to know something you don't know. If someone asks you a question and you don't know the answer, say, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> because you're not just representing yourself. You're not just representing your party. You're not just representing our movement. You're representing scientific socialism. And people will judge scientific socialism on you, on the things you say, on the way you present what you know or don't know. It's much better to say, I'm still a beginner in this, or that's an area I've not looked into, than to try to bluff your way and get caught out saying stupid things or look back and say, oh my God, I told that guy something that was totally wrong because I was trying to just fake it. Don't do that. <laughs> so, you know, there's been arguments over the meaning of the term imperialism ever since Lenin wrote his book in 1916. And that's not an accident. Of course it's not. It's a powerful, powerful weapon in the hands of the working class, that book. It's only a little pamphlet. You can easily read it once a year, right? You can sit down and read it pretty quickly. I'd advise you to read it slowly. <laughs> Don't read it quickly, because it won't go in. But um, study it. But study it regularly and thoughtfully and carefully and think about how it relates to the world you know. But of course, as with all Marxism, there have been a plethora of fake Marxists trying to take the revolutionary essence out of Marxism since there was such a thing as Marxism. And there have been a plethora of fake Leninists trying to take the revolutionary essence out of Lenin since there was Lenin. So Trotsky, at the time Lenin was writing, never accepted Lenin's thesis on imperialism, just like he never accepted Lenin's thesis on the peasantry. He basically never accepted that the working class had any allies. 
He wanted a pure proletarian struggle, bound to end in failure, but at least we'll be heroes. <laughs> right? We can't win, but, you know, we'll be pure. So Trotskyism follows in that, in that line, has always done so, um, and plays that part in the Western movement of disrupting, using revolutionary-sounding terminology to reinforce imperialist propaganda, disrupt the revolutionary movement, and effectively to act as the left wing of social democracy. Um, it's interesting looking just in my lifetime, the rise and fall of the, of the terminology because I'm so old that I was at a demonstration at the outbreak of the first Gulf War. That was January 1991. I was just about to start my second term as a student. I was 18. I didn't know too much about anything. I was not yet a scientific socialist. I'd read a couple of books when I was in my teens and I kind of mentally identified with them, but I was not studying or involved in the movement. But I went to that demonstration in Hyde Park and um, my dad was there with his comrades obviously and they were selling newspapers and he gave me a bunch of newspapers like what you're talking about Caleb so I'm walking around holding copies of Lokar I don't really know why I don't really know what's in it but you know okay and um, I was, kept getting harassed attacked by Trotskyists who come and yell in my face so there must have the word imperialism must have been in the title somewhere on the front page and that what were attacking me no such thing as imperialism. I don't really know what they're talking about. But I've, I remember that they were all very cross and shouting at me. Fast forward to the second Iraq war, 2003. So you can do some maths there. How many years later is that? 12 years later. Now, the Stop the War Coalition in Britain, which was formed of a lash-up between the Trotskyites and the revisionists. It's funny how they're supposed to be so antithetical to one another and yet how happy they are to work with one another. And the reason is because for all their alleged theoretical differences, their practical program is exactly the same. Right? Vote Labour. <laughs> That's it. So, and you know, keep the working class harnessed in behind that. So they come together to lead every rebellious movement in our country in the last 30 years. They've worked together to harness it and turn it into a vote labour campaign. Make sure it doesn't do anything useful. So, Stop the War started using the term, but without any scientific content, purely as a term of abuse. One of the signs for me that there was no science in the way they used it. I said, well, it's a step back, right? It's an admission that there's such a thing as imperialism. They have to use the word. They can't get away any longer with pretending it doesn't exist. So things have moved on that far. And a lot of that's pressure from people like us who've been putting out <laughs> newspaper headlines and leaflets persistently, consistently, all the way through that time talking about British imperialism, right? So they're on the back foot a little bit. They like to pretend we don't exist. We're so, we have no influence. We're so tiny, we're nobody. But they feel our influence, right? And they have to retreat in the front of the ideological warfare that we are quite good at waging. Um, so they used to talk about US slash UK imperialism. Now, this might not trigger any alarm bells for people in this room, 
But for me, it very much did. Because there was a certain moment in British politics where the British ruling class moved from talking about Britain to talking about the UK. And it was while they were pushing very hard Scottish nationalism and Welsh nationalism as an answer to the anger of the working class where industrial jobs had gone. And they were encouraging them to feel like, oh, it's the English, it's London, it's the English, the English, and we're, we're all colonised peoples. And it's also a, it's a sleight of hand because they disappeared at that moment. The fact, the relationship between Britain, an imperialist country, and the north of Ireland, a colony. And they went, the four nations of Britain. The four nations of the UK, right? And now everyone's talking about the UK and the four nations, and it's England, uh, Scotland, Wales, and Northern Ireland. And the UK disappeared Northern Ireland as a colony. You understand me? And equalised it with Scotland and Wales, with which it is not equal. And the trots started using this term, UK imperialism. And to me, it's a massive trigger. <laughs> So I'm giving you some little bit of little bit of history in there. If you hear, so I never talk about being from the UK. I don't like it. I mean, you know, it is our state. Yes, the United the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, but it's British imperialism. It's the British nation. The North of Ireland is a colonised part of the Irish nation, right? So there's a. I like to be clear in terminology. <laughs> And uh, the popularisation of the term UK for anything other than a postal address is something that I witnessed happening in my lifetime. And now young people all do it. They all talk about the UK, the UK, the UK, the UK. So they've been brought up and brainwashed. But when I was a kid, we never, ever... I didn't know what the UK was because you only wrote it on a letter from abroad. That was the only time you ever heard it in the 70s or the 80s. No one talked about the UK. So little tiny little history lesson for you guys there but what I'm trying to say is the use of the term imperialism so the trots felt like they had to but they used it in a very unscientific way just really as a term of abuse and simultaneously with feeling they had to use it they would characterize Britain's involvement in the war just as oh Blair is Bush's poodle so they basically disappeared the reality of British imperialism that British finance capital is involved for its own reasons, right, in these wars, that it's decided to be a junior partner to US imperialism for a reason, right? They act almost as if we're like a colony. I know, I mean, you see this lots of places, unfortunately you're seeing it. I've, um, I know that Marxist Leninists in Australia made this analysis about Australia sometime back, that Australia was a colony. You know, it's, <laughs> it's, it's not correct and it causes a lot of confusion. You know, we need to understand what imperialism is and how it works. And, you know, yes, there are stronger and weaker imperialist powers since, since World War II. But, you know, for all kinds of reasons that we'll, I'll go into, but we have to recognise how imperialism works and what is an imperialist country and what isn't and what the relationships are and how you can recognise them. And the fact that an imperialist ruling class might decide to ally itself with a more powerful one and go along with it doesn't stop it being an imperialist, doesn't make it a colony or a poodle or, you know, uh, the things that people come up with. They, they have their interests that they're following. Um, and then now we come to 2022, Ukraine, and suddenly we are inundated with the term imperialism. From where? From the imperialist media. Yeah. And who are they talking about? 
They're talking about Russia. They're talking about Ukraine. Oh, sorry. They're talking about China, right? And they're even using not just our terms in terms of um, imperialism, our terminology against us, but they use the words like decolonization. Has anyone seen that? They want to break Russia and China into pieces. They don't say that. They say, we want to decolonize Russia. We want to decolonize China and free the poor, oppressed, suffering nations. Wow. I mean, it's clever. You've got to give them that. You have to study to understand. If you haven't been studying, if your communism is a badge, they can get you just on the emotional response you'll have to those words. They will stop you from looking into it for yourself and understanding what the hell's going on here. And that's a, that's a clever sleight of hand. It's a clever trick. It's a nasty trick. But we have to be strong to be able to withstand that and see how the trick is being played and be able to expose it to the workers who are affected by it. You know, there are many people in the world who really hate imperialism. So telling them a country's imperialist is a good way to make them hate that country, right? And seeming to give them proof, look at the oppressed nations inside their own territory. Oh my gosh, wow, that's terrible. Yes? We have to be able to show how these are lies. You know, Lenin defined imperialism, and it's, it's, not, it's not a big company. <laughs> One monopoly, especially if it's a state-run <laughs> monopoly. <laughs> oh, you wouldn't think you had to explain that, would you? A state-run monopoly is not monopoly capital. <laughs> um, you know, it's like, okay, so say in North Korea, the transportation system is run by a monopoly. Are they imperialists? You know, you'd think it's stupid to ask, but this is the kind of reasoning that's going on. So Lenin talked about the world, how capital had become international and become an international economic system, which he called imperialism. Monopoly capitalism, the highest stage of development of capitalism, the, the markets become global wealth. I mean, that has definitely not changed. <laughs> And he talked about five basic features of this world system. The concentration of production and capital having developed to such a high stage, it's created monopolies which play a decisive role in economic life. Tick. Definitely still true. Yes? We know it's true. Look at anything you're wearing, using right now. It's been produced by a multinational based in one of the imperialist countries. Yes? Yes. The merging of bank capital with industrial capital and the creation on this basis of a financial oligarchy. Financial oligarchy running the world, anybody? Yeah. Yep, still know that to be true. I saw some of the slides yesterday. One of your comrades produced very nice slides looking at the connections between almost everything that happens and some or other group of finance capital oligarchs. Uh, the export of capital, as distinguished from the export of commodities, acquires exceptional importance. This is a really key one, right? Lenin talked about this parasitic nature of this handful of exploiting countries where the finance, these huge stores of finance capital live in certain countries. And those countries, the states are basically run by 
the, the lords of capital who own these huge stocks of capital, they run their native states and they use their armies and their, and their power to control the world. Um, they export their capital to make bigger returns. The, the home market's not big enough for the amount of capital they've got. It can't give them back on their investment. There's nothing to invest in, there's nothing left. They have to go internationally, they have to dominate the world. They export money and they bring back profit and then they do it again. Only now they've got more money to do it with, right? So there's, there's a gravity to capital. The bigger it gets, the bigger it gets, and the bigger it gets, the bigger it gets, right? And the faster that happens, because, you know, each time, the, you know, if you imagine it to be a yearly cycle, I mean, it's a, you know, let's simplify it down. Imagine it to be a yearly cycle. You know, you've got this pile of capital. It has to get bigger because that's how capital works. It's really a big pile. You have to find a lot of big opportunity to invest a big pile of capital and make a return, right? Say you've done it, taken it abroad. You've exploited some workers, exploited some raw materials, got huge profits, brilliant, bring them back. Now your pile of capital is this big and you have to do it again. And it gets harder and harder and you're sucking up more and more of the world's wealth. But as you suck that wealth towards you, you're make, giving yourself an even bigger problem. Because every year, the amount you've got to invest is bigger and the impoverishment of the masses is worse. And what Caleb talked to you about yesterday, the ability of the people to buy back the things that you made is shrinking, even as your need to make more things is getting bigger. So these are historically constituted hordes of finance capital. It's not easy to displace the power of those under the present system. You can destroy them, you can appropriate them. You can't just shove it aside in a, in a global marketplace. That kind of weight of financial strength can't just be moved in with a word. You know, oh, here comes China. So, so you know, uh, 200 years of accumulating finance capital now makes no odds in the world market. That's not how it works. So, and the fact that export of capital is so important, we see that because, okay, look again at the goods we were talking about. You know, it's sold by Apple. It's sold by Unilever. The profit comes back through the city of London or through Wall Street. But where was it made? Uh-huh. China, India, Nigeria, Taiwan, all kinds of places. Thailand, Vietnam, Bangladesh, Cambodia, you name it, somewhere in Latin America, somewhere where labor is cheap and profits are high. Still true, okay? We're just doing some ticks here. The formation, number fourth characteristic, the formation of international monopolist capitalist associations which share the world among themselves. Now, definitely still true. Right? Look at any marketplace for any big important thing. Look at big tech. Look at big oil. Look at the way in these sectors, these most key sectors in our economy, are sewn up between a few enormous companies and the way they work together to keep the prices high. That is exactly what Lenin described, 2AT still going on. Officially, it's illegal. They definitely don't do it officially. In practice, everybody knows they do. Every now and again, there's a scandal. 
and someone complained. Maybe there's a maybe there's a, 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 an inquiry in your parliament or our parliament for a little while, goes on, rumbles along in the background somewhere. In practice, everybody knows. Proust gouging is going on all the time. They set up their agreements in order to keep prices high and keep ripping us off because they can. That is how money works. That's how capital works. It's impervious to the law. It is the law. And then finally, he talked about the territorial division of the whole world amongst the biggest capitalist powers having been completed. Now, that, of course, got disrupted. It got disrupted by exactly what Lenin said it was going to disrupt it. He said, imperialism is the, is the eve of the social revolution. The epoch of imperialism, where capitalism, all of capital's contradictions have reached a, 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 a kind of most developed stage, become so acute, and now they're even more acute than they were when Lenin was writing, have become so acute, they are breaking out everywhere, and the force within capitalist society, the struggling to break the bonds of this old society and create the new one, is also coming to the forefront. The era of social revolution began at the same time as the first inter-imperialist world war broke out, right? So we still have all the other features of imperialism that Lenin talked about. And what we actually see now is that in their desperation to try to solve their crisis, the imperialists are trying to reverse the gains of the anti-imperialist camp. They want to get that territory back, right? They want to loot it openly because just trading with people is not making super profits. It's not good enough, it's not big enough, it's not enough of an opportunity for all of that capital. They need open plunder and looting. They need a naked, brutal exploitation of the people, the naked looting of their resources, paying little or nothing to take them away, like they do with the oil in Syria. Are they paying anyone for that oil? Not even, <laughs> not even a little bit. <laughs> and the wheat, absolutely. Right? We'll put our base where the oil is. We'll put our soldiers where the oil is. We like the oil. Wasn't that what Trump said? I mean, the thing we loved about Trump was he was so blatant about it. <laughs> because Obama did the same policies, but slickly, nicely in a suit while talking the language of respect and equality. Trump just said it how it was which made him, from our perspective, an excellent leader for world imperialism. <laughs> People forget that, don't they? They're so busy, they're so... What they don't realise is they, when they are upset with what the leader of world imperialism looks like, they betray the fact that they're identifying themselves with, with who was supposed to be their class enemy. You want your class enemy to look slick? <laughs> you want them to do a good job of hiding what they're up to? Why? Why? Who does that help? They don't understand the class struggle at all, which goes to show they're not actually waging the class struggle. What I talked about earlier, they're just oppositionists, right? But fundamentally, they've identified themselves with the leader of the West, the free world, the, you know, all of that mythology, right? They're up, they feel personally affronted to because they think that person represents them. But he doesn't, he represents your enemy. 
And if he's doing a job where half the time he accidentally fires on his own side, be happy about that. <laughs> Guys, I've been talking a long time. We love it. Um, yeah. So, <laughs> um, on the plane home from Caracas, I wrote a document just to try to sum up what's the problem with the KKE, because, you know, they're a, they're a party that has um, a great deal of prestige in our movement, and they're misusing the prestige that they have and the influence they have and the finance they have access to to do a lot of harm. But they're hard to take on because, you know, a lot of people have been working with them for a long time and have felt them to be, you know, good, good people. They'll hold up a picture of Stalin, right? They use all the right words. And they had seemed to be helping to hold the communist movement together through a difficult time. So if you will let me, I will, I will read it to you. It's not that short, though. Is it okay? If I feel like I'm going on too long, just ask me to cut it short and I will. That's allowed. Okay. So here we go. So for communists, theory has a very special place in our work. As followers of scientific socialism, we understand that without a revolutionary theory, there can be no revolutionary practice. We recognize the importance of establishing a correct understanding before we can act in a way that benefits our class. That leads to the development of the revolutionary force and the defeat of our enemies. That's always what we're after, right? It's always the point of everything we're doing. How do we develop a revolutionary force? How do we defeat our enemies? Yes, we are here to defeat, to destroy imperialism so that the working class can build socialism. That's the guiding force of everything that we do. Our theory helps us to know in practice what to do. So we have to know what we're doing. Otherwise, we could be doing anything. We're not here to keep ourselves busy. I quite like knitting. I quite like playing the piano. There's a lot of why I like walking the dog. There's a lot of ways I could be busy. Without a correct theory, we have no guide to effective action. And we will slip automatically into practices that can be safely contained within the parameters of bourgeois politics. So for Marxists, practice is worked out on the basis of our theoretical understanding of the system, of the balance of class forces at any particular time, of the ultimate goal we're trying to achieve, a socialist society, of the most important step we should be taking at any particular time. Where is our enemy the weakest? What's the most crucial, crucial question facing workers? Who are our allies right now in this particular phase of the struggle? For the KKE, on the other hand, a theory has been created in order to cover a retreat from this Marxist position. At some point in its development over recent decades, the party has decided to accept and reinforce the place it has achieved for itself in the accepted extreme left wing of bourgeois political life in Greece. The party has become dependent on the financing it receives from its elected representatives in the national parliament and in the EU parliament. Be careful what you wish for and what you work for, comrades. 
It has professionalized its cadres, not in the Leninist tradition, but in a bureaucratic way, in a spirit of unquestioning and uneducated loyalty to a leadership whose primary motivation appears to be the maintenance of their comfortable position. It has created a machinery whose primary function is to recreate and maintain the machine. It must seem radical enough to get a certain amount of working class votes, a certain number of elected positions, but not so radical as to bring down retribution from the Greek or EU machineries on its head. Fundamentally, to maintain its machine, it must not rock the boat of bourgeois politics. So some letting off of steam, a pressure valve for working class anger, is of course acceptable and necessary, but no action that will seriously call into question the status quo or undermine the bourgeois order. For such action would be bound to bring punishment to the party. Media vilification, a cessation in its funds, even its outlawing and the persecution of its leaders. Yes, if the class struggle hots up, those are the things that come to us, we know that. And as the economic and war crises escalate and domestic political stability is undermined, those things are all the more likely to come, if we're doing the right things. <laughs> Having made its decision, I don't know when, I don't know why, the KKE needed to cover its tracks. That's essential if it wants to maintain its membership and its voting base and its position in the international movement. So a seemingly Leninist theoretical I have to put it in quotes, justification is needed to be presented to the world to explain its refusal to take part in some of the most important battles of our time, its determination to stay safely on the sidelines. This, to the best that I can understand it, is what's motivated the creation of its so-called theory of the imperialist pyramid, which in the name of Lenin has put Lenin's teachings on imperialism into the dustbin. What does this theory consist of? What's its essence? It tells us that every economy in which trade takes place and commodities are produced is a capitalist economy. At a stroke, this vulgarization negates the Marxist historical understanding of the development of commodities, the understanding that capitalism is the stage of human social development in which commodity production is the dominant form of production ignores the fact that commodities were produced since the time of the earliest class societies, that they existed in slave owning, existed in feudal societies, and will continue to exist for some time in socialist society. Like anarchists, the KKE leaders inform us that anyone who produces something for sale on the market, whether internal or external, anyone who uses money is a capitalist. <laughs> Further, this is their theory, this is their Lenin. It tells us that since capitalism globally, according to Lenin, capitalism globally has now entered its monopoly phase, and since capitalist production tends everywhere towards concentration and towards monopoly, every capitalist in the modern era is also an imperialist. Magic. See how they did that? A equals B equals C equals, right? Beautiful logic. So we're told that this goes as much for the capitalist of Burkina Faso as for the capitalist of the USA. Apparently, the desire to grow your capital reveals a desire to become an imperialist. 
and this desire is all that counts. So according to the theory of the pyramid, every country that engages in trade from Great Britain and France to Cuba and the DPRK is guilty of imperialism. The various states of the world just occupy different levels of the great global pyramid of imperialism. And according to this travesty of Marxism, the contradictions between the various countries are all inter-imperialist, to be explained by their competing interests and the desire to displace one another from the top of the pyramid. So again, with a stroke of the pen, without a shred of evidence to back up these wild claims, the KKE's theorists have vulgarized and distorted the Leninist concepts of monopoly control of the global economy and of inter-imperialist rivalry until in practice, they've actually disappeared. Most significantly, by rewriting Lenin's material description of the global monopoly capitalist economy with its handful of dominant powers who can use their financial, technological and military power to exploit and oppress the vast majority of nations, the KKE has given us a picture of a world where imperialism is to be found in every human transaction and is therefore nowhere. Because without explaining how they've done it, without a shred of evidence to overturn the Leninist conception of the present global system, the creators of this theory have disappeared what they contemptuously refer to as the so-called national question. Now see that? I found that phrase in the middle of a 15-page document written in like, you know, 10, 10 years ago or something, you know, presented to a conference where probably no one was paying attention. And you have to pay a lot of attention, right? Because this was a, a big document. And most of it was just sort of, you know, repeating phrases from Lenin. You go, yeah, 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 yeah. And then I suddenly found it in the middle, the so-called national question. What? What just happened? What just happened? A comrade of mine described it as the shit sandwich. <laughs> So, you know, you wrap it up in a whole load of non sequiturs about imperialism that no one can argue with, but also you don't really know why they're there. And if you have persevered long enough, if you've listened hard enough to get to the bit that's hidden in there, look how quickly it's in the middle of a sentence and they've gone right past it. The so-called national question. Yeah. I'm sorry, hang on a minute, because that's quite foundational, isn't it? How did you abolish the national question? On what basis? What's the evidence? Why has it changed? Nothing. It's just chucked in there and left like a bomb and walk away. The so-called national question. What? And they bury this in a document that they deliver to some seminars where clearly some people were half asleep. And you know, you have to pay a lot of attention to notice that happening, frankly. 15 pages and it's half a sentence, right? I had to struggle through that document. It was not fun. How can you do that? It's a fundamental question in the world today still. They've disappeared it without explaining how or why. Why is the national question, the question of the liberation of the oppressed nation from their super-exploited position, of the providers of super-profits to the parasitical countries, that question which is so vital to the working-class struggle against imperialism and forced socialism, why is that no longer a real question? No word. No word about that. Just an assertion and walk on. In the name of Leninism, claiming to see monopoly everywhere, the KKE has obscured our vision of the actual, historically evolved global monopolist powers. Those whose real, historically accumulated stores of capital, the ones I was talking to you about earlier, enable them to use their monopolistic power to control governments and economies at home and all over the world. 
and to continue to suck tribute from the world's masses. And they've hidden it under a welter of imaginary monopolists. They've transformed the materialist conception of the world economy into a kind of idealist identity politics. You're a monopolist because you would like to be one. <laughs> what? At the same time, they've also reduced communism to an identity. A communist is no longer someone who studies socialist science in order to bring its powerful truths to the masses and give leadership and direction to the revolutionary movement for liberation and for socialism. It's just a person who hates capitalists, who wears the right badge, t-shirt, cap, loyal to the right team, chants slogans against the appointed enemy. But such people, overwhelmingly young and untrained, are fodder to be manipulated by a leadership that desires to pres preserve its radical image while shifting the focus of its activities into official oppositionism. A communist of this type no longer has a positive role to play in the transformation of society, in the evolution of history. He or she is merely an eternal protester, an anti-capitalist who will never overthrow capitalism, an anti-war activist who will never stop a war, an anti-racist or anti-sexist who will never do anything that threatens the real economic roots of racism or sexism. This retreat into opportunism by the KKE, a party with a great revolutionary tradition, with a mass base and an established position in the political, social and cultural life of the Greek people, is a terrible blow to the class struggle in that country. The more firmly its leaders stick to this counter-revolutionary line and vilify all those who sincerely try to bring them back onto the revolutionary path, the more certain it becomes that the working people will have to form a new party in order to lead their struggle for social liberation. That is a great setback and a tragedy for the Greek working people. Unfortunately, the actions of the KKE do not stop at the borders of Greece. Using its international prestige as the inheritor of the Greek Revolution, using its impressive professionalism, its strength in numbers, its financial power, the KKE has been pushing its anti-Marxist theory onto parties all over the world. It's taken advantage of the theoretical confusion that prevails in much of our movement. I talked about why that is earlier. To promote its militant-seeming anti-materialistic line everywhere, using bribery, threats, coercion, and manipulation of all kinds. In many parties, themselves already sunk into a morass of social democratic oppositionism, they've been knocking at an open door. Such parties are led by those who are only too happy to be given a revolutionary sounding justification for abandoning the difficult positions of the class war, especially in the imperialist countries. Let's face it, I noticed the CPB in my country very happily adopted the line that it's an inter-imperialist war, very happy that the Greeks can give them a big load of theory that sounds like Lenin to put on the front of doing that. It's a perfect recipe for staying at home, isn't it? Not our war, not our problem. Everybody's bad. I'm on the side of the Ukrainian workers, whatever that means. In other cases, the KKE has used its controlling influence in the, um, in the World Federation of Democratic Youth, for example, to manipulate young members against the elders of their parties. Sound familiar? In still others, it has used its omnipresent international officers to cultivate strong personal relationships with the international secretaries 
of various parties around the world and tried to use them as its agents. Confusion, inner party warfare and splits have been the result in parties in many countries of the world. And what's the practical outcome of this so-called theory? The practical effect on policy of the parties that accept this line is to characterize the present war as one between two imperialist powers in which the working class has no side. And since every country is described as imperialist, even the future wars that are likely to break out between the DPRK or China and the USA will also be characterized as inter-imperialist. To tell the workers such lies at such a moment is to amplify imperialist war propaganda and demonize the anti-war movement, demobilize the anti-war movement, sorry. <laughs> yes, it's a crime. It's a crime, comrades. The communists should be the steel at the center and the brain at the front of the anti-war movement. And they're on the side, sat at home or arguing in cafes. The communists who should be the heart and the front of the anti-imperialist, anti-war movement are on the sidelines. No calls for working class unity by these charlatans can cover the true wrecking nature of this activity. In place of working class unity against imperialism, their call is a plague on both your houses for inactivity and passivity. At its heart, I'm sure they would be offended to the core of their identical beings if they heard me say this, they probably do hear me say it, but what they've actually done is reinvented Trotskyism. Because like Trotsky, they refuse to recognize the imperialist reality of oppressed and oppressor nations. Like Trotsky, they refuse to recognize the need to unify the proletarian struggle in the imperialist countries with the anti-imperialist struggle in the oppressed countries. Like Trotsky, they refuse to see the revolutionary potential in any other class than the proletariat. Like Trotsky, they refuse to get their hands dirty with any alliance that might allow them to take a concrete step towards their alleged goal of socialism, which thus remains an abstract, unattainable dream. Like Trotsky, they cover the fact that they're reinforcing imperialist propaganda against all the anti-imperialist leaders and movements with revolutionary sounding phrases. Like Trotsky, they have converted themselves, whether willingly or by accident, into an agent of imperialism within our movement. Given the persistent, aggressive and determined pursuit of this disorganizing line, their vitriolic ad hominem attacks, yeah, attack on the man, on all those who try to show the working class why such a line is a political error, they don't answer the politics, they shout against the people. We can only conclude that the KKE's leaders, at least, have indeed taken what we would refer to as the king's shilling, that they have sold out their class for a mess of pottage. In their documents, the KKE like to compare NATO's present proxy war against Russia on the territory of Ukraine with the First World War, describing it as an inter-imperialist conflict between two monopolist powers over control of resources, markets, and avenues of super-exploitation. No proof is given for this characterization of Russia's economy, just as no proof is given for the assertion that China, but also Brazil, 
India, even Iran, Venezuela are imperialist countries. No evidence is given to show how any of these countries live by exporting capital, super-exploiting the globe and repatriating the super-profits they earned back to their home territories. No evidence is given to show how these nations live by what Lenin called clipping coupons from their parasitic activity. No evidence is given to show how the workers of these countries are bribed using a proportion of these monopoly profits. Is that how the people of Russia and China get a nice life? off the backs of the work of the world? <laughs> On only one point is the KKE correct. The present war, which will no doubt be looked back upon as the opening of the Third World War, has been brought about, just as were the First and Second World Wars, by the deep overproduction crisis of the global capitalist economy. That is true. In 1914, Two imperialist blocs faced one another and fought over who should have which share of the world's territories and markets. That was an inter-imperialist war in the truest sense, and it brought about the era of proletarian revolution, just as Lenin had predicted. World War I led directly to the October Revolution of 1917, and the global capitalist imperialist system has been living on borrowed time ever since. In 1939, when the war that had already been being fought in several theatres around the world, Spain, China, broke out into a global conflict with the entry of British imperialism against Germany. This too was an inter-imperialist conflict over control of territories and resources on the part of Germany, France and Britain. The German invasion of the USSR the Soviets' ability to manoeuvre the USA and Britain into forming an alliance against the Nazis changed the character of World War II. So its primary character became that of an anti-fascist war. It was on this basis that workers in the imperialist countries were mobilised to fight on the same side as their rulers. Correctly mobilised, as they had been incorrectly mobilised against their interests in World War I. To defend the Soviet socialist motherland, and defeat the fascist threat. Britain, France, and the USA continued to pursue their imperialist aims, but they were induced to do so in a way that prevented them from joining Nazi Germany to destroy the USSR. As a result, the Soviet Union was able, at a tremendous cost to itself, to defeat the greatest war machine humanity had ever seen, to liberate much of Europe, and to give a tremendous impulse to the spread of socialism across Europe and Asia. <laughs> After World War II, with the imperial powers of old Europe and Japan fatally weakened, unable any longer to maintain their military and technological dominance, the imperialist powers huddled together under the protective umbrella of the USA. The only imperialist power whose economy, productive capacity and military capability had been strengthened by World War I and World War II rather than weakened. All the other imperialist comrades were on their knees because of World War I and World War II. The USA saved the day for all of them. Without the financial backing and military support of the USA, the imperialists of Europe could not have survived. They would have been expropriated and displaced by the risen workers and the triumphant march of socialism would have seemed unstoppable. But history doesn't move in a straight line. 
Life didn't follow the confident predictions of the communist and anti-imperialist liberation fighters of the 40s. The help of the USA allowed the weakened imperialist powers to recover to a certain extent, while the revisionism, revisionism of the post-Stalin USSR led to the slow undermining of the strength and prestige of socialism, and ultimately to the collapse of the revisionist Soviet regime, whose unworthy inheritors of the mantle of Lenin and Stalin were the destroyers of the great Bolshevik party. The dissolution of the world's first socialist state and of the people's democracies of Eastern Europe came at a vital moment for the imperialists because they were once more facing a severe global crisis of overproduction. They were saved in the nick of time by the orgy of imperialist looting that ensued when the wealth of the Soviet and East European peoples was plundered. The masses of the world were further demoralized by the apparent triumph of bourgeois politics and economics over Marxism. But while the Soviet Union and the European people's democracies were dissolved, socialism and anti-imperialism did not disappear from the world. China, the DPRK, Vietnam, Laos, Cuba continued to defend their socialist countries in the face of huge pressure. Countries that were targeted by a newly confident imperialist camp for regime change, regime change operations mounted tremendous resistance. And Russia, which for a time had allowed itself to be ruled by comprador agents of imperialism, got up off its knees. It picked itself up and it determined that it would use its vast resources for its own purposes, defending its right to national sovereignty by making use of the technological, military and economic base that had been bequeathed to it by its Soviet builders. In the face of a renewed global crisis of overproduction today, the imperialists have, for now, determined that their best chance of saving themselves and their system remains in huddling together under the military and economic leadership of the USA and aiming their combined force at the destruction of the primary centers of independence and sovereignty in the world, Russia and China. In doing so, they hope to bring about a repeat of the carnival of pillaging they enjoyed after the collapse of the USSR, be in no doubt what they're after. They want to break Russia and China into pieces, subdue their peoples and plunder their huge resources. Thus, we can see that the Third World War will be primarily characterized by a confrontation between the camps of imperialism and anti-imperialism and that the workers of the world have everything to gain by ensuring the victory of the anti-imperialist camp and the defeat of the imperialists. In promoting this understanding, our comrades of the platform have been accused of the crime of social chauvinism, of calling for the victory of one imperialist power, as the Social Democrats so notoriously did a century ago. Stop and think about that for a minute. I'm here, a British socialist, Whose defeat am I calling for? Whose victory am I calling for? I want the defeat of my ruling class. I'm not here to mobilize British workers in defense of the fatherland. I'm here to mobilize them on the side of anti-imperialism against their own ruling class. It's a stupid and a totally false comparison, and it doesn't take very long to see through it. You have to not be scared by the sound of the accusation. If you stop and think about the, the content of it, there's nothing there. In one respect only, 
Is the Keiki's analogy with 1914 correct? The outbreak of the First World War revealed the deep split that had been developing in the socialist movement during the peaceful decades leading up to the war. Lenin placed huge importance for the development of the revolutionary struggle of the working class in exposing and opposing the rottenness of the opportunist wing of our movement and bringing together the revolutionary section of the movement in each country into a common struggle. This work was one of the cornerstones of the Bolshevik success in 1917. It was the basis of the formation of the World Communist Movement and the Revolutionary Third International, under whose guidance the world's workers were able to advance so successfully. The present war has likewise drawn a line around the world and revealed the deep split in the socialist movement. We in the platform have every intention of following this great example of Lenin. From him, we have learned the vital importance of fighting for revolutionary ideology at a time of world economic crisis and war, at a time when the imperialists are doing everything possible to divert the anger and confuse the minds of the immiserated masses. Let workers and oppressed peoples everywhere understand this is not an abstract question of armchair theorizing. This is a fight for a correct understanding of our concrete conditions in order to allow us to determine the form that our practical activities should take. And this practical work is a matter of life and death for our movement and for humanity. Let us be in no doubt. The victory of the imperialist camp over the anti-imperialist countries would set back the cause of liberation and socialism by 20 or 30 or 40 years, with all the attendant misery, death and destruction to humanity. That is why we must expose and oppose the politics and activity of groups like the KKE, who have become the agents of imperialism in our movement. That is why we must do everything in our power to unite the forces of anti-imperialism, to provide them with a correct understanding so they're able to identify who are their friends and who are their enemies at such a crucial moment in history, so they're able to form the strongest possible alliance in order to achieve victory in the crucial battles that face us. Because just as World War I led to the October Revolution and the building of the first workers' state, just as the October Revolution inspired the founding of revolutionary communist parties and national liberation struggles all over the world, just as World War II led to successful revolutions in China, Eastern Europe and East Asia. So we have the chance to ensure that the criminal provocation of a third world war by our profit-hungry rulers leads to a fresh revolutionary wave and to ensure also that this time we are able to see it through to the finish. opportunity to do uh, 10 to 15 minutes of Q&A, maybe a little bit longer. Um, so um, for the sake of the video, um, we'd like you to come up and say your question into the microphone, uh, just so we can hear your question, uh, and uh, ask Jody some questions. And don't be offended, I have to run to the bathroom, but I'll be right back. So just. I'm sorry, comrades, for going so long into the Q&A time. Please. Tap the mic. Okay, there we go. 
Uh, first, great speech. Thank you so much for that. Um, I, my question actually has to do with um, Khrushchev. Uh, I was wondering this. I, I kind of thought of this while I was uh, reading um, uh, uh, Khrushchev lied. Uh, is it possible, or in your opinion, that possibly Khrushchev was part of the rightist conspiracy from the beginning and was able to avoid being found out because of his position? I almost don't like to answer because everything is just supposition and guesswork, isn't it? That's fair. Uh, I have a strong sense that he may well have been. But, I mean, I wish he'd have left us a nice document <laughs> <laughs> explaining what he was up to for how long and for, on, on behalf of whom and who was backing him. But uh, unfortunately, he didn't. <laughs> I just was curious your opinion on I that. Have, I mean, I have often suspected the same thing. Okay, thank you. Yeah. That's, that's all I have. The class struggle after the revolution is both fierce and uh, complex, right? But we, have, we, we should be under no illusions that the class struggle continues and in fact grows more acute after the revolution. Uh, yeah, so probably don't want to hold the microphone in front of the speaker because of feedback, you know, beep, but it's fine over here. Anyway, uh, okay, yeah. Well, uh, so I was going to ask about uh, the class composition of uh, Britain. So, you know, in America, we have a kind of an odd uh, class composition because a lot of Marxists kind of talk uh, about the proletariat as if there's like millions of workers in factories and mines and all this stuff. But we're very de-industrialized and most of our economy is service work, right? So we have kind of a, a, a strange, you know, situation that I think is hard for a lot of Marxists to comprehend and digest. Would you say there's any parallels in Britain and do you have any advice on how we can handle this? Definitely. Um, our chair, Ella Rule, produced a lovely pamphlet uh, in response to a, a resolution at one of our congresses some years ago. I think there's a few copies on the back. You can also, I if you can't download it, I'll make sure you can. <laughs> but it's available on our website. It's um, a class analysis of Britain in the 21st century. And um, I think it's important for us to understand that a proletarian is not just somebody who works in a big factory. Uh, and the term middle class is endlessly, and working class are kind of endlessly abused. Uh, as Marxists, we have to be scientific in our terminology and our use of words. Middle class is a meaningless term. We know what we mean colloquially, but scientifically it doesn't have a meaning, right? So working class, proletarian, are interchangeable as far as we're concerned, terms for people who have to sell their labor power for wages in order to live, right? You are a worker. Um, yes, in our country, um, you know, part of it, it's not even just, you know, we talk about deindustrialization as if there's no industry. In fact, there still is a, a considerable amount of industry, but it's so productive that it employs very few in terms of numbers of people or proportion of the population, right? Uh, very few humans are required any longer in a car factory because it's, it's mostly been automated, roboticized, whatever. So there's a few well-paid, skilled workers in a big factory making cars, um, but it's not an employer of 20, 30,000 people the way it used to be. 
Um, that's not much, so much deindustrialization as the advance of the productive forces, right? It looks like deindustrialization because the industrial jobs went. <laughs> the numbers of industrial jobs went. And of course, much of our industry has been exported elsewhere. But it's, I think it's important to recognize both of those things have happened. There's been export of capital. There's also been automation, the development of productive forces. So you've you, you got both things happening simultaneously. Um, we have the same, exactly the same thing. Um, like I said, it's important to understand what a worker actually is. Um, and unemployed people are also workers, unemployed workers, right? There's this tendency, a kind of extreme Maoist tendency, but it's it kind of caught on to describe everybody who doesn't have a job as lumpen proletariat. Uh, this is not correct. You could even be third generation unemployed and be an unemployed worker. You know, it's not your fault you don't have a job. It doesn't make you lumpen, right? You're a member of the working class. Um, also, so recognizing that a lot of um, the more skilled, better paid workers are still workers, there is a divide, and particularly in imperialist countries, um, we know that the labor aristocracy, the better paid workers, um, tend to have a petty bourgeois mindset, mode of living, because of their salaries and their position in the economy. Um, but still, they're workers, you know, privileged workers uh, and less privileged workers, yes. We understand that the, the base of our movement is, is lower and deeper to the mass of the poor working class. But equally, you know, we do try to explain to some of the you know, teachers and doctors and people who are also actually being put upon quite badly by the state, they're actually just workers. Right? They also just rely on their paychecks and increasingly their paychecks aren't meeting the rent. You know? So they're, they're realizing their proletarian status uh, much more clearly these days because what, what's described as the squeeze on the middle class is actually the squeeze on the paying conditions of the privileged section of the working class. And uh, as scientific socialists, we have to recognize that and understand it and find ways to talk to people on both sides of that, of that divide because the, you know, it, life's getting worse for all of them and socialism is definitely the future for all of them. <laughs> Um, did, I'm not sure if I answered the question or if there was more to it. Um, I, could, I could go a little deeper with it. So, um, there's, there's been a, a trendy question uh, in a, a lot of CPI-adjacent groups about whether or not service work is truly uh, productive labor since uh, it's not really like commodity production, you know. So, I guess there, there is, is that angle to it. Um, and... Um, there is that, but otherwise I think you answered it pretty well, so. That's the kind of debates you can easily get into when you're reading Capital with people, isn't it? And um, in the end, uh, it's kind of not the point. Um, <laughs> the point is people's relationship to the means of production, not whether or not the job they do creates value. On some level, I mean, you know, if you're in a coffee shop, you're definitely producing value for your employer, definitely. Um, but, you know, teachers, doctors, they're not producing value, but they're needed and they can still be exploited, right? <laughs> they're not, they're not um, you know, they're living from paycheck to paycheck and, and they have all of the conditions of, of working people. So um, I think people can get diverted from the point very easily by these debates. It's an interesting technical question to try and understand, but it's, it's not the thing to get yourself too caught up in. Please. Um, I kind of have two questions about Lenin both. My first question is, 
why do you think uh, Lenin and his teaching are less frequently mentioned than, say, Marxism or Stalin or Mao? Lenin is kind of in the shade, is it, because he's most feared out of all? And my second question is, for the revolution, Lenin said, the first thing, you get a hold of communication. <laughs> what is the plan for that? I'll answer the second question first. I don't yet have my plan for the revolution, sorry. I'll evolve my plan when uh, the question is imminent. Uh, I tend to feel that one needs to solve in detail the question that is in front of one. And again, it's one of the things that people can get bogged down in, is kind of getting into a, almost like an alternative, it's, it's, a, it's a version of LARPing, right? An alternative reality where you get into great detail of solving a future question. I've seen people, huge, you know, kind of forums and discussion and experts on the internet talking about how they're gonna, what technology they'll use, which even what programming language to run a planned economy in the future. It's like, comrades. First things first, <laughs> cart before the horse, right? It's, it's a way of, of, of imagining and dis disappearing the real question that faces you with the one that's so far away that, you know, you just, it's just, it's just fantasy, isn't it? It's role play. It's, it's fantasizing that the revolution has happened and enjoying yourself with the thing that you particularly like thinking about rather than applying yourself to the real task that faces us. So my view is, and it, my husband's a computer programmer, and uh, I tell him off for trying to over-engineer over his life. And you know, he has this way of getting caught up in trying to work out the details of something that's three steps down the line. And I always have to try and remind him, we have these little arguments now and again, that look, if something's too many steps away from you, there's literally no point expending your energy on thinking about it because that may not be where you end up. It's too many steps away. You understand me? The broad picture of things we know, yes, we're gonna have a planned economy. Exactly the order of things, exactly the structures, how it's, we can't work that out now. We'll, we'll work it out when we're doing it. Don't worry about it, but definitely planned economy works. And definitely you can do it on a, you know, on a piece of paper or with big data. There's a, any number of ways you can do it. That's not the point. It's not the technology that will determine it. It's the people, it's the determination, it's the understanding that planning is what we need, right? So that was the second question. The first question about Lenin, I think you kind of answered it. It's that Lenin analyzed this phase of capitalist development, imperialism, and taught us how to apply Marxism in this phase of history, how to build a party, what a party is for, how to win the class struggle in every way possible. Lenin is the power of Marxism in this era. Lenin is the victory of the working class. Of course they don't talk about him. <laughs> So here in the United States, we have this um, split in the population where you have, of course, the woke left that's really petite bourgeoisie. And then, of course, you have the um, uh, very woke. And then you have the working class that finds identity politics to be, they don't call it bourgeois degeneracy, but they see it as degenerate, okay? And then you have the question of the lockdowns and vaccinations, and you have this other split here. Um, 
And the question now is, so you have this basically petty bourgeois left, right, that's promoting, that was promoting lockdowns and vaccines, but then you have this working class that's so against this. And the question is, if we want to build an anti-war movement, how do we get these two groups working together? It's a very good question. And I think fundamentally, what we need to do is take a step back from the identity politics, culture war approach to these questions. Our job as Marxists is to bring the truth. We can bring the truth to both sides of that argument. Because on both sides, people are being manipulated to fight one another instead of to fight the system. And it's our job to show them how they're being kept stupid by this pointless culture war presentation of difficult questions, diverted from what matters, made to despise one another, fight one another, use up all their energies and hatred and anger and frustration. The frustration that's really with the system and the conditions of life it enforces on them, they're taken out on one another and, teach, and being taught to despise one another. But it's, it's wrapped up, this culture war, it's vitriolic and it's all emotional. It's all about emotion. Now our job as communists is to deal in facts and science and to be cool and calm and to understand that we have a message to both sides of this fight. And we have the ability to cut through if we can keep our cool and not get sucked into the emotive Punch and Judy show. So avoiding presenting the question in a Punch and Judy polarized way is, I think, really, really important. And that's the first place to start. Start with facts. Start with showing people how on both sides they're being manipulated to hate one another and fight with one another. Show them what the truth is. Show them why the truth matters. Show them that socialism is the answer to their problems. Easier said than done sometimes, but I think that's the approach we have to take. That's certainly the approach that we try to take where we are. I mean, it's, I'm not sure how we can really even have, how do we have dialogue? Like, what are we going to say? I mean, people lost their jobs who didn't get vaccinated, okay? Um, people, um, because the schools were closed, um, their kids went hungry. And they saw this bourgeois left that they saw telling them, well, we don't care that your kids are hungry. And so this, I mean, you see what I'm saying here? It's a little bit more than just emotion. People actually suffered in many cases. And then, of course, you have the right, which is very homophobic, which is true. And, well, I mean, the, anti the trans question, of course, has been always been in the politics. But how do you really realistically bridge this gap? What do you say to each group? How do you get these to work together? I don't live here. <laughs> <laughs> I, it's, you know, your particular conditions aren't exact conditions that replicate in my country. So I don't want to tell you how to do your job. I can only tell you how we do our job in analogous but not identical situations. And we 
Yes, we have to tailor our message depending on who we're talking to. But the point is that we try to take the emotion and the heat out of it and explain to them the function of what's going on and why is they're being whipped up to hate one another. And yes, that the fake left, the, you know, try and separate the leaders and the followers of the synthetic left, as you call it, yes, of the fake left. Yes, their leaders deserve all the vitriol. Well, the followers, most of them are motivated by wanting to do the right thing, by wanting to be nice, by thinking, you know, so it's understanding that and speaking to them in that way that recognizes their motivation, but tries to help them to see that their motivations are being manipulated. Their desire to be nice is actually being manipulated to turn them into agents of bourgeois propaganda against their own interests. That's the important thing. It's the same way that we go to people who are, uh, are absolutely convinced that you know, uh, immigration is their problem. We don't go and shout at them and say, you bloody racist, pardon my language. We say, look, this propaganda has been pushed on you against your own interest. It keeps you divided and weak and looking the wrong way and blaming the wrong people for your problems. This helps your class enemies. It doesn't help you. And that, some way or another, that's the message we're trying to get to people, isn't it? I'm not saying it's easy, but that is the message we want to take to people. You're being manipulated by your class enemies in their interests against your interests. In the interest of time, let's finish the line, let everyone in mind have a chance to ask their questions, and then we probably should, should wrap up this morning's session. Sure. I'll try and keep it brief, although I do have to read off my, my phone a little bit. But okay, okay. I just want to say your speech was really, really refreshing because you re repeatedly used the term anti-revisionist and, and talked about how, uh, and, and at one point you talked about the danger of falling into to pragmatism, right? Um, and so I have, a, I have a question for you, given the fact that despite that, despite being against pragmatism and, and being against revisionism, you are also not one of these people who use anti-revisionism to hate China and say that China is imperialist and you, you directly critique that idea too. And so I have two very, very short quotes, uh, one from Lenin and one from Stalin, because as you said, we need to go back to the basics of Marxism to understand these questions. And then my question for you after I read them, uh, which they will be both very, very short, is what is then, in your opinion, China's position as far as the the, the whole class dynamic goes globally and how, how they play into geopolitics, like what their position is truly then, because uh, um, like they, they did adopt some form of pragmatism uh, under the Deng Xiaoping era, so, and you disagree with that, but you also don't hate on them. Uh, and in fact, I might just read the Lenin quote because it's, it's the one that I care about most. It's actually one of my favorite Lenin quotes. Uh, it comes from 1921 when he was presenting the NEP and he says, get down to business, all of you. You will have capitalists beside you, including foreign capitalists, concessionaries and leaseholders. They will squeeze profits out of you amounting to hundreds percent. They will enrich themselves operating alongside of you. Let them. Meanwhile, you will learn from them the business of running the economy. And only when you do that, uh, will you be able to build up a communist republic? The Stalin quote I was going to use was just proving that there was uh, commodity production under socialism. So and everyone's already read that. So yes. So that is my question then for you. What, what, what is China's position? Thank you, comrade. Wow. Just a little question. Um, so in the interests of um, telling the truth, I have to tell you that our analysis of China is uh, we don't equate Deng's reforms with the NEP. Uh, we don't believe, 
our analysis. I mean, we're only us, yeah, okay? Sure, yeah. From our corner of the world, based on our understanding of Leninism, our and Marxism and economics and all those things, our analysis is those retreats and compromises under Deng Xiaoping, the marketization of China's economy was not necessary and is not the driving force of China's success. Our belief is that the foundation for China's success was laid in the Mao era and would have been as meteoric but less problematic if they had stuck to a planned economy. That's our belief. But we are not going to let that difference of opinion make us mischaracterize China as our enemy. <laughs> that, comrades, is what they call dialectics. <laughs> so you have to understand the contradictions in the world. The CPC is still in charge of China. Socialism hasn't completely been destroyed, although, let me tell you, it's, it's heavily undermined by the marketization of the economy. I don't believe it's some brilliant master plan to, you know, suddenly one day they'll pull the rug under and it will be a perfect planned economy. I think that they've created a very difficult situation for themselves to get out of. They've got a big, powerful bourgeoisie now, but the bourgeoisie is not in charge. That's one thing. Number two thing, even if it was, even if a counter-revolution had happened and the bourgeoisie was in political charge in China, I would still be on China's side. Why? Because China is an anti-imperialist country, and today, that is the most important question on the planet. We have to understand the primary contradictions, comrades. We cannot, it's identity politics, it's bourgeois politics of the worst kind, to say, I will not form an alliance, I will not stand next to someone with whom I don't agree. You have to look at what you're trying to achieve, and then who's on your side for that battle. I won't stand next to someone in the Labour Party who says they support Venezuela, right, in this fight against imperialism, because it's not really true, is it? <laughs> right? They're just saying it. It's window dressing to dress up the fact they're on the side of imperialism. I will definitely stand next to any bourgeois in the third world who really practically actually is fighting imperialism, okay? So we have to understand who our allies are and then work with them for the goal that's in front of us. Uh, near the end of your talk, you, um, when talking about revolutionary defeatism, calling on our own, for the defeat of our own ruling classes, uh, you sort of said, well, don't be afraid, and you just skipped right over that. Um, and I'd like you to elaborate on ways we can think about um, dealing with that. And I, specifically, um, you know, when Lenin and Rose Luxembourg had time, they had some time to make their arguments. And um, I'm not sure that given the different weapons and pace of communication, we're going to have so much time as things escalate. And I think we need to pre-think this question because I clearly remember during the Vietnam War, um, it was for a long time perfectly okay to be anti-war. But when you started standing in solidarity with the Vietnamese, all hell broke loose and came down on everybody very hard. And I don't think we're gonna have that gap, even if we can build an anti-war movement. I think this issue of calling for the defeat of our own class, our own ruling classes, is, um, or even just pointing out what China and Russia 
and the anti-imperialist forces are trying to create globally of a new alternative multipolar world. I don't think we're going to have time to link those things. It's possible that we're not going to have enough time. So while I recognize that you're saying you don't, we can't know what's going to happen until we, we get to the moment, I do think it'd be very helpful to, to um, pre-think some of this. And if you could just give us a little bit more nitty-gritty on how not to be afraid and how to, how to approach this, this problem. Thank you. It's a very interesting question. I have to tell you, I don't have a good answer for you. Uh, the way I look at it, in terms of personally not being afraid, is I just don't think about it. Honestly, truly, I say I'm a Marxist, I'm just doing my job. If something happens, I'll deal with it. And that's my personal approach to everything. Because I'm here not as me, not as my mum to my kids, but as a part of a movement, as a, as, a, as a part of the motive force of history. I'm doing what needs to be done. If something happens, I'll deal with it. And I, I take the view generally about this type of stuff is you can... My I'll give you a personal story, okay? I lost a baby. And that baby was stillborn at the end of a full-term pregnancy. And during that pregnancy, I spent a lot of time arguing with hospitals about whether I should be allowed a natural birth because my first child had been born by cesarean. And I was convinced I should be allowed and they were convinced I shouldn't. I don't know, all this arguing, all this arguing. I did lots of research and preparation over here, preparing for the thing that... Every, they were telling me there's a, there a threat to the rupture of the wound if I have a natural birth. And you know, we're all over here, worrying about this thing. And the thing that hit me came from over there. <laughs> it wasn't the thing I was preparing for. And it's... Um, over and over in my life, I've found that the things I prepared for weren't the things that hit me. And uh, we are preparing. We're preparing our forces for revolution. We understand the sweep of history. But when we get to the nitty gritty of trying to manage the future, what I talked about with my husband earlier, I'm afraid my perspective personally is you spend a lot of time and energy and get very stressed out. You can get into granular plans. And they're all unnecessary. You just spent a lot of time preparing for the wrong thing. Because, you know, in general, we can see the, the hostile forces are hostile to us. But exactly how that plays out depends on so many factors. Whether or not you even get arrested and repressed depends on a lot of things. I have comrades in South Korea who are constantly crossing the line with the anti-security law. And the government there is in a quandary about whether or not to repress them. Because repressing also backfires, yeah. right? So I'm sure they have preparations and they have thoughts, but exactly how things work out, you can't, we don't have a crystal ball. We have a, we have a big view of history, but not a granular one. And when we work too hard at trying to micromanage the thing that might happen, I think we get, we get just too distracted and overwhelmed. And usually our preparations turned out to be for the wrong thing. So that's, I tend to be a little bit fatalistic and say, let's just wait and see. On that front, I'm sorry it's not a very good answer. Actually, that, I'm so glad you answered that, but that wasn't my question. Uh, it's odd that that's the, I, now I realize that's what it sounded like, but what I was asking for was um, how do we approach this? I mean, I'm sure it's different in Britain than it is here. But maybe you should just speak to Britain. When you speak to people, working class people, who are, are 
in the moment rising up or in some situ in whatever the situation is if the issue if the remaining issue is this issue of patriotism if that that's still a, a, what's stuck in the craw despite all of the other because of the propaganda that is being really bombarded at the moment if that is the issue how can we prethink ways to talk about it now um, with this particular configuration that's different from what Rosa and Lenin were dealing with the 1914-15. This is a parallel but quite different situation in terms of how we speak to people about it. And I was wondering whether your party and your people have been sort of pre-thinking the ways to talk about this now that would be different from the way it was back in, before World War I. Thank you for clarifying that. I'm not sure how different it is. I mean, I'm pretty sure if Lenin had been on the streets of St. Petersburg in late 1914, early 1915, he'd have been lynched. <laughs> and yet in 1917, they were carrying him shoulder high through the streets. So, you know, at different times, your message is easier or harder to receive. And of course, as a communist, you have to give it whether or not it's easy or hard to receive. That's the whole basis for it becoming easy to receive, is that you said it when it was hard. So... Um, do I pre-think the way to deliver it? Mm, no, suck it and see. <laughs> Practice, see what happens, reiterate, you know, find your way. I really enjoyed, actually, uh, what um, Garland said yesterday, and I was thinking that was a real masterclass in talking to people who've been heavily brainwashed and something that I'm going to get all my comrades to look at, because they always talk about how difficult it is talking to people in the street, and they come and they shout at you, and how do you talk to them, and getting drawn into arguments where it's just like that, it's not very productive. Uh, I thought it was a really useful way of thinking and looking. So um, look again at that speech that Garland made yesterday, and think about what are some things I can point out that everybody knows, and put them next to each other. <laughs> well, they're definitely true, and I'm not... You know, it doesn't have to be antagonistic, but just what are we trying to do? We're trying to just help people to think, try and leave them with something that they have to go away and mull over yes. that changes how they perceive what's around them and how they perceive the propaganda they're receiving. You won't persuade somebody in one conversation. You can leave them with something to think about. And I thought that the way Garland expressed that yesterday was really useful. Yeah. I don't know if I've answered the question. I'll do my yeah. best. <laughs> Yeah, great speech, by the way. Um, don't worry, my questions are pretty short and straightforward. Um, so the World Anti-Imperialist Platform, how does an organization sign on to it? And also, um, is it reserved to just parties and larger organizations or could, say, an educational group of about 20 people or a smaller media collective sign on? Thank you. Um, so the Paris Declaration... Uh, I'm pretty sure is open to different types of organizations who, who just agree with its analysis. The platform is something slightly different itself. It's really for parties, anti-revisionist parties. Either way, uh, if you want to sign the Paris Declaration or if you want to get more involved with the platform, uh, the thing to do is to use the website, uh, the email, sorry, address, which is on the bottom of the uh, webpage. Um, our comrades in the People's Democracy Party of uh, South Korea, they manage a lot of the organisational work. Uh, they are the biggest force in the platform by far in terms of their organisational capabilities. Uh, but, you know, we, we discuss it collectively at the, the working group of the platform. So I hope that's helpful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's discuss. Definitely. All good?
Thank you. Thank you so much for your patience. I, I really appreciate your letting me talk for a lot longer than probably I was supposed to. No, it was tremendous. It was really.